Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I am the other host, Timothy Deal. And welcome to 1962. Last time was in the 50s, now we are in the 60s. Yes. So our movie this time is Lawrence of Arabia. From 1962. And we are going to, in a just second, I get to it, but we just want to remind everyone that we're here to give you a taste of a, of a movie, of a classic, but if you want to go in blind, I guess skip this. We don't want you to skip it, but skip it, go in blind, but hopefully we'll either say, hey, the things you've been hearing, yes, it's worth it, or... Don't listen to them. Go run. Yeah, I thought so. that was worth mentioning just because it occurred to me, like, going into this one, we knew big picture stuff but didn't know a lot of details about it. And we really don't give you lots of details. We do, we do try to avoid the big spoiler kind of kind of moments. But obviously, if you want to go as, in, as blind as possible, you probably shouldn't be listening to a podcast about a movie. But if you're very curious about something, just like, what's, the, what's this taste like? What, what can I expect? This is the podcast for you. And even if you won't go in blind, you can still know. Tim, what's happening in the movie industry in 1962? That's a good question. Let's take a look. All right, time for our Wikipedia rundown. And I'm going to try to go through this quickly, although I am very interested in some of this stuff because in film school, I took a film history class that covered like up to 1960. So now that we're getting into the 60s, like, ooh, this is new stuff for me to kind of try to sink my teeth into. Okay, now you're like, ooh. So it was a whole new world, Tim, right? That's right. So you can see part of the premise of the podcast is see how movies change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're getting close to when we were born, but there's that gap between 60s and mid 80s that we don't really get. That's right. And yeah. it, we're definitely outside of the classic Hollywood time. The, the studio system is gone. The film industry is still competing with TV and other entertainment sources, such as cheap rod automobiles and vacations. Drive-in theaters hit their peak popularity during the 60s. They were had been around for a while, but this if you think about your quintessential like drive-ins. Double feature monster movie sort of thing. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is your era. And of course, widescreen spectacle is still being heavily used to compete with TV with a big focus. Focus on your musicals and your epic things, big sprawling landscapes. Which this movie is an epitome of. Exactly. It's right in that time period. As far as New Hollywood or the American New Wave, there's some debate as to when this particular era of American film starts. Is that kind of the name for classic Hollywood and then New Wave? Is that sort of the terminology yeah, yeah kind of i mean like i said it seems to be like there's a little bit of a gap between the demise of the studio system and hollywood figuring what the new thing is going to be okay what's going on here yeah basically <laughs> i mean as early as 1957 there was a life article that described that used the term new hollywood and described the 50s as a horrible decade for hollywood due to the changing economics and okay. difference again it's a lot cheaper to people could afford cars they wouldn't go all over the place and tv had entertainment right in the home so suddenly movies weren't like the source of entertainment there were a lot more options besides just the things i already mentioned like yard games and yeah. all kinds of new gadgets like, that were coming out what jar uh, jarts is that the like yeah like lawn darts yeah. kind of stuff yeah sure okay so what with the demise of the studio system then what replaces it 
Yeah, that's basically the big question. Yeah. And the actors and directors and writers were beginning to get more and more leverage for what projects they and what their salary, what their payment would be. Um, that's one thing this Life article talked about back in 1957. Um, notably, in this year, the year that we're talking about, 1962 is the year that the American film critic Andrew Saris translated and wrote about uh, the French director, Francois Truffaut, his ideas about the role of directors, or as what we call now, thanks to Saris, the auteur theory. Which is? Which is the idea that directors have the primary say on what's forming what a movie is and what a film is. They're sort of the, the creative genius at the center of the movie. Yeah, yeah, in a sense. They should have the most control, and, and really the movie should be their creation, in a sense. This is coming out of the French New Wave, started in the mid-1950s, where it was really going through its own kind of renaissance of high-quality art movies coming out. European cinema would have more and more of an effect on American cinema as the decade would go on. That being said, some critics point to the mid-1960s, a little bit after the year we're talking about here, as the true beginning of New Hollywood or the American New Wave, with the success of a very morally ambiguous movie like Bonnie and Clyde, which came out in 1967, started doing more of that sort of thing, started demanding more to uh, younger audiences who were drawn to the more complex themes of foreign cinema. Mm -hmm. And so from a Christian perspective, there's some good and bad things going on and all that. Yeah. Some artistically interesting ideas, but some loosening morals. So, too. so it's kind of, it's getting mixed up in all the social changes going on in the 60s. Right, right. The 1962, we're just on the cusp of, on the eve of some of that stuff. Um, the production code is still around at this point, although its authority was waning. And in 1952, there was a Supreme Court decision that ruled that First Amendment protections applied to filmmaking, and that reduced the threat of government censorship and therefore reduced the uh, the need to feel strictly bound by the yeah, production because, code. Because the studios were self-censoring, and they are kind of like, uh, do we have to? Yeah, and yeah. The, the American culture was, it was having loosening morals yeah. too, so... By 1956, had been the code had been tweaked to allow certain subject matters to be done, and more and more films were challenging the code with explicit material, such as Psycho, which came out in 1960. Mm -hmm. So you can see a little bit of that. There's more violent action scenes in Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. although I think you could say there's a lot of a lot of the most gruesome stuff is still kind of kept off screen. They still they still imply a lot of it, which. We'll get to, but I think works just as well of showing it yep. in the case of this movie. That's right. Yeah. The production code itself would be replaced with the MPAA rating system in 1968. So again, we're a little bit ahead of some of that stuff, but that's kind of the big picture stuff. Some notable films. Yeah, from, this is a big year from films. Yeah. So the top grossing uh, movie, depending on which list you're looking at, <laughs> uh, it was either Lawrence of Arabia, this movie, or The Longest Day, which is a war movie about D-Day. Yes. Probably the most prominent D-Day movie, I think, before Saving Private That's Ryan. That's my understanding. I've seen parts of it. Yeah. Okay. Some prominent Oscar winners from this year. Uh, well, Lawrence of Arabia won Best Picture and Best Director. The Best Actor went to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird. Which uh, schools still show their kids. That's right. And <laughs> and To Kill a Mockingbird was one of my other nominations for this for this episode. And then Best Actress that year went to Anne Bancroft for The Miracle Worker. Which I've seen, never seen the movie, but I've seen the play a couple times. It's very good. Yeah, I feel like the play is more known than the movie, to be yeah. honest. But um, my other nomination for this week's episode it had been How the West Was Won, uh, which was one of two movies filmed in Cinerama, which I had talked about that widescreen yeah. process last time. Although I found out, weirdly enough, so How the West Was Won premiered in 1962 in Britain, 
but it came out in the U.S. in 1963. That's a little weird. It is weird because it's a Western, obviously. Uh, okay. Well, the Brits really love their Westerns? I uh, Yeah, so I don't know. I might bend the rules a little bit to maybe 1963? Yeah, next time around, but we'll see. Well, the American release, I think it would count. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say so, but keep that in mind. Um, some other notable events in the world of film in 1962. On June 18th, MCA finalized their merger with DECA Universal. So I don't know if you ever remember watching like Back to the Future and seeing in some of the logos MCA Universal. Oh, okay. Uh, th- that's why I included it. MCA was like a media music company. That okay. They got, they got merged for a while, but I think they're separate again now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, also in 1962, on August 5th, Marilyn Monroe is found dead of a drug overdose. On October 5th, Dr. No, the first James Bond movie, is released in the UK. It will premiere in the US on May 8th, 1963. And this year also saw the film debuts of such prominent actors as Jackie Chan, Robert Duvall, Sally Field, John Hurt of the storyteller fame. Yes. <laughs> and other things. And, He's and the si- war doctor. Come on now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Sidney Pollack, as well as director George A. Romero. Wow. So, yeah, a lot is happening. I mean, it's. In some ways, the the dawn of the modern era of filmmaking. Yeah, very true. All right, so a lot's happening, and one thing's happening is this movie. So Lawrence Arabia, most of you have heard of it, but like, in a nutshell, what is this movie about? In a nutshell, this is an epic historical drama about British officer T.E. Lawrence and his time in the Ottoman Empire regions of Hejaz and Greater Syria during World War I. I'll give you a quick plot synopsis here. Lawrence is sent by his superiors to assess and report back the chances of local prince Faisal's revolt against the Turks. However, in the process of meeting the prince, Lawrence, who has a reputation of being insubordinate, winds up proposing a daring surprise attack on a Turkish port town that will require a dangerous trek across the Nefu Desert. Accompanied by his new frenemy, Sarif Ali, and in 50 men, Lawrence begins a series of journeys, adventures, and battles that will endear him to the Arabs he fights with, while he, in return, becomes endeared with the desert, his allies, and his own exalted position. But will Lawrence truly be able to write his story as he wills? This is a, it is technically based on a true story. Yes, technically based on T.E. Lawrence is a true story. Um, the film was directed by David Lean, who had previously done Summertime, which we talked about on Derailed Trains of Thoughts. Oh, yes. And The Bridge and the River Kwai. I have never actually seen. Yeah, we should fix that one of these yeah. days. It stars Peter O'Toole in the title role. Uh, with a supporting cast including Alec Guinness, mm-hmm. help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anthony Quinn, Jack Hawkins, Omar Sharif, and Claude Rains, which all of those had been longtime actors with the exception of Omar Sharif. I guess he had been a, he was a, an Egyptian actor. Okay. The, he's the one who plays Sarif Ali. Yeah. yeah. So he was an Egyptian actor and this kind of made, was his Western debut. His Hollywood debut. Hollywood debut, essentially. Although interestingly enough, this is a... Um, Made by a British company and distributed by Columbia Pictures. So it's kind of both a British and an American movie. Oh, okay. In some ways, it's kind of a joint production. But of course, it's in glorious color. It is in a widescreen screen ratio, specifically Super Panavision 70, uh, which is a wider... If you look at like what modern wide vision standards yeah. are, there's a format that looks very similar to our 16 by 9 TVs. Mm-hmm. And then there's the wider version. This ratio is kind of somewhere in between those. Okay. But as being on Super Panavision 70 means it's filmed on 70 millimeter film, which is basically a larger 
format of film. The physical film yeah, itself it's is, is bigger. So you can get more detail technically. Right, right. There's some purists who really wish that 70 had become more of a standard than 35 millimeter is still generally the standard when people shoot film these yeah. days. But there are definitely some 70 millimeter fans out there. Lengthwise, this movie is 227 minutes. So if you're going to watch this, you are in for a long haul. You need, you need half a day. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, three hours and 47 minutes, including the overture and intermission music, which I'm a fan of having these in, in long movies like yeah. this. Like if you're going to have that long of a movie, make an event out of it, really drum it up with some high quality music like that. So this is the most widely circulated home version edit available. There were some shorter versions made shortly after the initial release that edited out some dialogue scenes that some of them made it as short as 187 minutes. Wow. But the 227-minute version is considered the director's cut and standard version today. It was restored. This is interesting. It was restored in like the late 80s. So this would have been like 20 years after the film had originally okay. came out. And apparently they, they restored it right in the nick of time before some of the original film might have deteriorated oh, wow. or stuff. But Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese were instrumental in making sure that restoration happened. Nice. One last thing I should note, the music here is a beautiful sweeping orchestral score composed by Maurice Jarre, who wrote two hours worth of music in about six weeks, according to Wikipedia. That's crazy. I think he was given a short turnaround time, apparently. I mean, I, it's a nice theme, too, the main theme of yes. Lawrence Arabia. It's, it's one of those like movie classics you get on like great movie themes, and it's always on there. Like I knew about it before I Oh, really? Yeah, I was, not, I was not super familiar with it. Yeah, I'm, I heard it. I'm like, I know that. So. <laughs> nice. So, obviously, we had both heard of this movie, but who else cares that Lord's Arabia is... Why did we pick it? Why, why, why is it important in film history? Well, it was a very financially successful movie. It was one of the highest grossing films of the year back when it came out. And critics loved it, too. It was an instant hit with them, and it's been considered one of the best films in history by film critics ever since. It won Academy Awards for Best Picture, Director, Art Direction, Cinematography, <laughs> Film Editing, Music Score, and Sound. It was also nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor and Adapted Screenplay. Best Actor went to Gregory Peck, for, as I mentioned earlier, for To Kill a Mockingbird. But, Which makes sense. But Peter O'Toole does... He, he did a great job. He did a great job. He did deserve a nomination, too. And it won many other film awards, including some British Academy Awards, essentially, since it's both a British and American movie. Yeah, which makes sense. Those who had more mixed reactions were actual scholars of T.E. Lawrence and his family, particularly his brother, A.W. Lawrence, who had sold the rights to the book, uh, was kind of appalled by the final version of it. The portrayal of his brother. brother. Yeah, which we'll get into that. But he refused to allow the filmmakers to use the title of Lawrence's autobiography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. After seeing the final version, which to be honest, I don't even having seen the movie, I don't even know what that title means. I don't. I don't. Rem- no. I don't Seven pillars. He never talks about. He never strikes me as a philosopher in this movie. So well, he does. He. I mean, knew a lot. I think. I think it is a reference to some sort of. Um, I think Islamic idea. I oh. could be wrong on that. Oh, okay. I, I started it many years ago. The book and oh, okay. Yeah, I, I wondered about that. Yeah. All right. So the people liked it, and I know since critics like it, that it must have had a lot of effect on movies in general. So what are some of those? Well, it's been cited as an influence for such little things like Star Wars and Dune. <laughs> um, also other things like Prometheus, Mad Max, The Hurt Locker, which is a more recent I, I Oscar, just Oscar winner. All these desert scenes and just, I'm like, it's Tatooine. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere, someone speculating that 
this movie actually even inspired not just the movie version, but like the book of Dune itself. Oh, I could completely because, understand that. Because Dune came out after this movie oh. had been around for a little bit. Yeah. So, And I suppose it's one of the first big one of the movies about that desert culture. I mean, we, we've kind of, it's just kind of in our system now, but I wonder if there had been... That's a good question. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know the width, and breadth of desert movies. But, I don't know either. But I'm sure it, this one certainly was one of the biggest that had yeah. ever been done. Wikipedia stated that its visual style is influenced, didn't have very many references for this, but I wouldn't be surprised if people have brought this up in yeah. various interviews. Influenced George Lucas, Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott, Brian De Palma, Oliver Stone, and of course, Steven Spielberg, who um, has called the film a miracle. And as I mentioned last episode, it's his favorite movie of all time and the one that inspired him to become a filmmaker. Which, well, thank you, Lawrence of Arabia. Yes. <laughs> no kidding. In addition to all this, it is another film that has been inducted to the National Film Registry in 1991 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And it is on a bunch of the AFI lists for 100 movies. It was ranked as number five. For 100 thrills, it was ranked number 23. On their list of 100 heroes and villains, there were 50 of each, and they named T.E. Lawrence as number 10. For 25 film scores, it ranked at number three. For their list of 100 Cheers, which are inspiring movies, and ranked number 30. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it is an interesting one. For uh, the 10th anniversary of their 100 movies list, it ranked at number seven. So it went from five to seven, a little bit of back, but not too bad. And when they did their 10 top 10 on their list of 10 epic movies, it was ranked as number one. Mm-hmm. Some other smaller things, the British Film Institute ranked it in 1999 as number three on its list of best British films of the 20th century. And the filmmaking magazine Sight and Sound polled directors in 2002, and uh, they ranked it at number four. It is well loved by many, many, many people. Indeed. <laughs> but Tim... What do we think of this thing? This monster of a movie. <laughs> it is a monster of a movie. And I think I was most familiar with this from watching all those AFI TV specials from way back when and yeah. knowing, okay, this Lawrence Arabia thing seems like it's a really big deal. Yeah, I had a sense that I'd seen part of it. I don't think I ever have, but it's one of those movies that's kind of like sat around my brain like it's important and people like it and desert and sun and right i mean, back when i followed brad bird on twitter for a while back when it was a lot more fun to follow hollywood people on twitter um for things that <laughs> real political sized um but i remember him talking about like how much he loved lawrence of arabia and how if you, if you see it you gotta see it on as big a screen as possible don't sell for your iphone or on a laptop you gotta see it on big so i was like Okay, and I took that to heart, and I'd kind of kept my eyes open to see if there was a good time. And I think, I, you know, he, he might have been talking about it back when it had its 50th anniversary, and I didn't get around to it then. But anyway, for this, I insisted with Nick, we have to try to see this on yep. the big screen. So I actually... And you you were right. It <laughs> needs to be seen on a big screen. Like, I'm like, okay, whatever, but... No, you're right. <laughs> so I actually rented a projector from our library and hung a bed sheet in my parents' living room because it was what we had available for us, uh, hooked it up to a sound system. And it was, yes, it was made it for a very memorable uh, viewing experience. Yes. So should we listen to our initial reactions Let's from see that? what we thought.
Okay, instant reactions times for Lawrence of Arabia. I didn't know a lot of what to expect about this movie going forward. I didn't expect it to be quite as complex of a character study. I thought it was going to be more of a, oh, Lawrence of Arabia, he was such a great guy. I thought maybe he was a missionary or something that helps the, the natives of, or the, the Arabs. Uh, no, he has something of a messiah complex and is just slightly off his rocker. Well, not he's not mad, but yeah, this will be something interesting to analyze. But yeah, epic scale, but deep character study, deeper than I was expecting. Well, you took all my stuff. Um, <laughs> it's hard to process immediately, like almost four hours of movie. But yeah, very big, very sparse in the dialogue. I mean, it's very much a visual movie. In the intermission, about two-thirds through, the first half was more what I expected, and the second half was more like, oh, this gets really complicated. So mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. I can't figure Lawrence out, how he seems to volley from I can do impossible things to I can't do anything, right back to they'll all rally to me because I'm Lawrence. I'm confused. I think I enjoyed the first half more because he was developing, I guess. Or he he seemed to just be more fascinated with everything and wanting to do something good or help someone, but it seemed to get really distorted at the end. But other than that, I did enjoy the sweeping desert landscapes and the fascinating rock formations, and I liked the prince. I thought he was a fun character. Having processed it for about a week, I think we both still agree that this thing is an epic movie. I mean, just yeah. the size of everything, the landscapes, the scenes, the the plot. It's worth pointing out that when people talk about an epic film, we're not just talking about, oh man, that was awesome. No, not but, in this case. No, actually, when AFI did their epic list, they I think they specifically defined it as like an historical event on a grand cinematic scale. That's what we're talking about here. And, and the cinematic scale is very large. Yes. On this movie. Lots of people, lots of lots of people on horses and camels and big, vast, sweeping landscapes. But what I, I guess what I almost enjoyed as much, well, I think what helped the enjoyment of the, the big landscapes and the thousands of people attacking towns and is that the actual meaningful cast is actually pretty small for a historical movie mm. and it really keeps it's for as long as it is as it is and for as sweeping in year or not years but months as it is uh-huh. it is very focused yes and, and i think that helps it a lot because it's it's like it just knows what it's doing and there's like there's nothing really extraneous to it yeah that's an interesting point yeah it is epic in in scope, but not in subject matter. Yeah, in a way, like it's it, we're not covering like vast quantities of years over the course of this, and not even we're very focused on this very specific region and this and its conflicts. And it's really just one big idea mission and one big idea person. Yeah, for yeah. all of it. Yeah, and it I think that's part of the reason it works so well because it is big, but it's not cluttered. Mm-hmm. The English have a great hunger for desolate places. I fear they hunger for Arabia. Then you must deny it to them. You are an Englishman. Are you not loyal to England? To England and to other things. To England and Arabia both? And is that possible? 
I think you are another of these desert-loving English. That is... Stannard. Gordon of Khartoum. No Arab loves the desert. We love water and green trees. There's nothing in the desert. No man needs nothing. But yes, the scale in terms of like some of the shots, like oh man, okay. So there's a number of these. Well, I can think of two in particular shots where the this just vast emptiness of a, mm-hmm. of a desert landscape, and there's one figure approaching way, way in the distance. That he's barely, he's practically just a speck. Mm-hmm. Like if you were watching this on a smaller screen and not like on a projected one, you wouldn't see anything. I like, I don't know if you would even see that. Like even on our thing, it was like, it's like a, a grain, except, except it's like a black, you see this one black thing in the distant horizon and the characters are transfixed by Cause that's one thing that should not normally be there. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you just watch this one little dot approaching and it, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, when, when he's ran, running that whole time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except that, like, that's probably better. <laughs> better. It's probably what they were spoofing. It probably is. Yeah. Yeah. But that's fascinating. The other, so, and I did watch, I guess Brad Bird has done some hosting of a TCM show. Okay. Yeah. That Like the essentials. And they talked about this one a little bit and he talked about, and I remember noticing this, there's one shot early on where Lawrence has this thing of like, for some reason, extinguishing matches oh, yeah. with his bare fingers. But anyway, there's this one shot where he's, he blows out the match and then it smash cuts to the sunrise yeah. in the desert. And it's a very striking cut. Yes. And it's a cut that draws attention to itself. At least if you're a filmmaker, it does. Yeah. Like, I, I was like, oh, that was an interesting choice. I, I noticed that. I'm not even an editor, so. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting things you could theorize about why it works because of the way Lawrence is looking at it, that it's this one small red flame and then a transition to a giant red sky. Just there's a lot of little things like that. And then also, again, the way the some of the way the the landscape shots handled, like looked in terms of like with the rock and mountain formations around it reminded me a bit of the searchers. Okay. Yeah. And it turns yeah. out David Lean did watch the searchers in preparation uh, for this okay. movie. Searchers so, has a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a John Wayne movie and they go through monument Valley and the American West. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely some inspiration and it's hard. It's one of those things. It's hard to talk about. Yeah. Big landscapes. Why is that such a cool thing? But it really like immerses you into what this world is like. Well, and the camera in this movie, I mean, it's epic and it, it knows what it's doing. It takes the time. It's constantly telling the story. Yeah. Like there, I mean, there's talking and everything, but the visuals overwhelm everything. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is a very visual movie, both in its epic landscapes and just in it. They have little, very interesting, just storytelling device. I just noticed even at the very beginning, he's riding his motorcycle and then there's cr- constructions and signs and your brain's saying like, Something's going to go wrong. Uh-huh. It's very good about making those visual little cues. Cues, constant. I mean, just is very good at it. Yeah, it's true. I read somewhere that because of the widescreen, I don't know because the widescreen was new at the time, but there was a concern ab- about doing too many jump cuts or too much sudden movement could be very jarring. Okay. I'm not sure if that's because of the film or because widescreen stuff was relatively new or if that's just a general habit of thing about widescreen that modern filmmakers aren't as concerned about. (laughs) But you do notice like it held some of these long wide shots Mm -hmm. for a lot longer than a modern movie would. And I think to modern movies detriment, we don't have, aside from, uh, I guess you could say there's, there might be some shots in um, Top Gun Maverick 
that maybe have the slower pace because that feels like an older movie in some yeah. ways. But yeah, modern movies don't hold shots very long. And this one did. And sometimes it's just for the emptiness or the wideness or the just whatever it's communicating. The environment or yeah. something else. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say on that? No, I, I was just going to transition saying that. I mean, if it was just that, be a good movie. But then it parallels it with this very interesting character study of our main character yeah it's funny the beginning was surprising in the fact that we didn't i didn't really talk about the intro to this much because i figured we'd get to it later but so we see some of lawrence after he had gone through the stuff yeah we don't realize it's a flash forward well it's not a flash forward because it starts the whole movie's in the past but the very first scene is not yes yes and basically we see how he died yeah. Spoiler alert. But then they go to after his funeral and there's a reporter going around asking people, so who was this guy? What kind of person was Lawrence? Lord Allenby, could you give me a few words about Colonel Lawrence? What more words? The revolt in the desert played a decisive part in the Middle Eastern campaign. Uh, yes, sir. But about Colonel Lawrence himself? No, no, I didn't know him well, you know. None of them really feel like they know. And I couldn't help but think of Citizen Kane's. Like, mm-hmm. I was not expecting this to start with a similar framing device of like, who was this person? Yeah. But that's, that's how they introduce who Lawrence was. And it's very interesting that none of the people that I talked to feel like they really knew him or understood him. Well, the interesting thing after we got done, we weren't quite sure we understood him either, which yeah. in this case, I don't think is a flaw. I think that's kind of the point. Kind of the point and kind of... There's a lot of showing him, but he doesn't explain himself. Uh-huh. I think you can do a lot of talking afterwards and figure out why this and that and the other thing. But it is, he's a compelling character, but he's just shown. There's not even really judgments made about him from the movie's point of view. Yeah, which is a very interesting thing. I was a little surprised in some ways that Lawrence is ranked so highly on the top heroes list in, yeah. in retrospect. Because yeah. like... I couldn't really see him as a hero. It was a little like there are moments I can empathize with what he was feeling going through, but he himself talks about like him. He realizes that he is not a normal individual. He, yes. uh, he has this burden of greatness about him. Yeah. But whether it's actually deserved or not is whole is half the question. Yeah. Burden with glorious purpose. Yeah. The, I mean, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one of his superiors early on tells him like, if you're insubordinate of me, Lawrence, I shall put you under arrest. It's my manner, sir. Your what? My manner, sir. It looks insubordinate, but it isn't really. Well, I can't make out whether you're bloody bad-mannered or just half-witted. I have the same problem, sir. Shut up! Yes, sir. <laughs> and, I mean, he struggles with that the whole time, whether he's doing this great thing or whether he's just fooled himself and everyone else. Yeah. And... He does actually accomplish some stuff, but he also horribly fails at other things, and it's a very complex picture by the end. Mm-hmm. Now, you have this quote, because this is not necessarily accurate, correct? Yeah. I mean... Uh, yeah, like I said earlier, his people who knew Lawrence were not fond of this movie, because they felt like it didn't actually capture Lawrence. I found this one quote, and I forget where I found it now, probably on Wikipedia somewhere. But the biographer of the director, David Lean, this biographer's name is Michael A. Andreg. He wrote, Lawrence of Arabia does not attempt to present or to explain the real T.E. Lawrence, whoever he was. The person who was T.E. Lawrence does not and could not exist in the film. As soon as he appears on the screen, the lean, bolt, Peter O'Toole Lawrence takes on a life independent of historical fact. 
end quote. And that makes some sense to me. Um, the other funny thing about T.E. Lawrence, when I was reading about his story, apparently he was not known during World War I widely. Yeah. There was someone who was doing some presentations about stories about things that took place during World War I, a lecturer or something, and some big producers was particularly fascinated with the Lawrence one and said, hey, we should take this story, put it on a bigger scale. And so they did a bigger production of it in London. And that's how Lawrence suddenly became famous. Okay. So famous that he got mobbed and wound up writing his autobiography, which kind of adds to the whole, like, did he really have a messiah complex or, you know... Was it thrust on him? Was it thrust on him? But that's one of the strange ambiguities about making adaptations of real life people. Sometimes mm-hmm. for purposes of a story, we kind of like mold it in a certain way to for a more easily told story in the yeah. format that we're telling it in. And that may or may not be a bad thing. I mean, in some ways, I think we're so used to the adaptations being slightly different from real life that yeah. it piques some curiosity. It's like, okay, well, what was the real story? Yeah. So it does feel like the ambiguities was built into this one. Yeah. Which I think is interesting coming place at the beginning of 1960s. We're not really yet into the, like, we're doubting our heroes phase, but it feels like it's anticipating that. Yes. You're the most extraordinary man I ever met. Leave me alone. What? Leave me alone. Well, that's a feeble thing to say. I know I'm not ordinary. That's not what I'm saying. All right. I'm extraordinary. What of it? Not many people have a destiny, Lawrence. It's a terrible thing for a man to flunk it if he has. Are you speaking from experience? No. You're guessing, then. Suppose you're wrong. Why suppose that? We both know I'm right. So, uh, Tim, we have some questions in theory? Uh, yes. You have one you want to ask me first? Well, I guess it kind of goes into what you've already touched on. I was just curious. What is your, what's your view about how accurate does a movie need to be when it's doing a real life thing? And should we be told up front that it's only inspired by, or does it not matter? I think it is useful. I do like when filmmakers have something after, like before the beginning credits to kind of differentiate, tell some of the facts about the actual person. Yeah. Say. But does that ruin a movie like this? That's its own thing. For me, it doesn't. I guess for me, I, I take the adaptation and the real life story as almost two different stories. Like, this is an interesting character study of a person. And even if it's not the full, complete story, I mean, from what I understand, when the screenwriters was informed by various sources, not just the autobiography end of crashing so, this so one. So it really seems like the what you're saying is that, at least in the case of this movie, they were taking everyone's perceptions and creating this amalgamation of different people's view of him and that's kind of why it's we have to decide well yeah you just have to settle on a story somewhere i mean it reminds me of what something i was told about the movie evita or the musical evita how the opinion of that adaptation is mixed with people who are actually from argentina Mm -hmm. where the like half of the audience thinks it treats that character eva Ramon, no. Yeah, Eva Ramon, I think that's right. Yeah, I was, was like, I know it's Eva, I couldn't think of the last name, but some people think it treats her uh, too nicely and other people think it doesn't treat her well enough. Okay. And so it was like, well, maybe it had, because it's in this middle ground, maybe that means they got it right. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's something to that, like, and this is true for like a lot of historians, like mm-hmm. sometimes a lot of how we tell the story of the past is subject a little bit to interpretation. Yeah, because the truth is there, but people's perceptions of it are all over the place. Yeah. 
So yeah, I'm like, yeah, it, it so, does. So, so, so you don't mind if movie makers take a real story and imbue their own meaning into it. I think it's acceptable as you know, as long as it's mostly accurate to the actual story. Okay. I mean, if it's wildly off base, I think that's more of a problem. And maybe some people who knew Lawrence would feel as mildly off base, but. I don't know, given the ambiguity that this movie in particular builds into its depiction, I think that's a healthy thing. Okay. Okay. If you have the cast of Mark's brother in this movie, <laughs> how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you ask me another question like this? I had a, I, I a Muppet one, but oh, Muppet I just one. feel like Mark's brothers would be an interesting... Um, I feel like I feel like history. Lawrence would be played by Harpo. No, no, just one. You, like you keep the same movie. Oh, keep the same movie. No, you just have to put one of them in. Oh, okay. So don't change anything. Don't just... change anything. Same movie. Oh wow. Hmm. Okay. In that case, I would have Groucho be part of the British government and completely making fun of everyone he encountered. That, that actually kind of works. Yeah, because you've got some character like the Claude Rains. The old guy. Yeah. He's bas- his whole be- job there is basically just to sit in the background and look sardonically yeah. at everyone. I think that would work. Okay. I just, <laughs> it was hard to come with a silly one. It's like, it's such a complete serious movie. It's like anything breaks it. Yeah. <laughs> but. Okay. So question for you. Does this movie make you want to visit the desert? No, but it does make me, it does, it doesn't intrigue me when to learn more about the World War One front on this side like yeah. i think it interests me in the history but it doesn't make me want to go Visit it. no I, th- I i feel like movies that show off like the pyramids and stuff make me more want to go to the desert than this one does this one just like it just looks hot <laughs> <laughs> it does, you do feel like thirsty and I yeah mean, hot just watching this thing. i mean it's beautiful but it yeah i don't think it makes me want to go okay next question if you did wind up going to the desert yeah what would you take home as a souvenir oh that has to be in this movie just in general uh let's say something from the movie okay you know what? That one, I forget his name, the general that helps him. The, the second general? Yeah, not, not Allen, Ali, but the other guy. Allenby? I don't no, know, not, I not general. I'm of the, of the Arabs. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I know who you yeah. mean. The beard um, guy. Well, he, he throws out all that paper money, but he thinks it's worthless. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> not where I thought you were, were going to go with that, but that works. <laughs> All right, Tim. So here's here's the real question. Was it worth it? I enjoyed this movie. I it was a good movie. I it's like even a great movie. I don't know that I would wind up like I've really enjoyed talking about it. I don't know that I would call it one of my favorites like mm-hmm. Spielberg did, in part because yeah, I don't consider Lawrence a hero. He's, it's a fascinating study, but I don't know. I I enjoyed talking about it, but my immediate impression was I don't know how much I love this movie, mm. but it is well worth watching. I would say, like, I always go into super long movies a little tentative, like, why is it this long? This deserves its length. And I think if you're, if you're, want to see classic movies, this is almost, you almost have to, I think. Yeah. But I'm with you. Like, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I'm not sure how often we would want to Re- rewatch it. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. Sure. But I, yeah, I, I think, I think if you have any interest in classic movies, if you have four hours, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you've got, you've, you've got, it's the technical aspects of it are insanely good. Yeah. I have no problem co- calling this essential viewing. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the technical aspects. I heard one of the things they had to like do to do retakes of certain shots. They had like 
a hundred Bedouins or some or Arab someone yeah. that would have to smooth out the sand for because you know in time a camel would yeah. walk through it'd mess up the sand. So like they had to have like someone with like padded sandals with wow wrapped in wool or something to smooth it all out. So I have to say I did like the movie. I think there's other movies this season so far that I've liked more just for enjoyability, mm-hmm. but just as pure like movie making. Yeah, I think you need to watch it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was thinking about, like, other epics, for another epic movie that takes place in a similar setting, I think I actually like Ben-Hur more, but I have more history with that. Mm. Ben-Hur is a movie that we watched sometimes around Easter time, and it has similar kind of scale, and again, it's in biblical times and similar setting, so it has some of that grittiness. So uh, some critics might disagree, but and, and plus, of course... The ending is much more closer to my faith than this one. Yes. It again, feels like Lawrence, eh, because it's ambiguous, it's hard to yeah. have quite the same emotional attachment for me. Yeah, yeah. I got that. All right. Uh, so that is Lawrence of Arabia. Should you watch it? Yes. Yes, you just you should watch it. You So that was 1962. Um, Next week, we'll be back in 1972. 1972. With? The Poseidon Adventure. I don't know what soundtrack is. Yeah, I don't know either. But it's this is a disaster movie. The original sinking ship disaster movie. Not the original, but like the quintessential one before Titanic came around. So it should be, like all these movies, very different than from the one before. Indeed. So, yes, which has been an exciting whirlwind journey here. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it's been all kinds of stuff. So it should be a splash. Sad trombone. Okay. Anyways, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, feel free to please share us with your friends. Listen to our other podcast, Your Trains of Thought, at... Um, Wherever fine yeah, podcasts yeah. are found. <laughs> yes. Including our website, derailedtrainsoftheoughts.com. All right. And that's it. So this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye-bye.